Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 25. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 13 through 27 this morning. Acts chapter 25, starting in verse uh, 13 through 27. Uh, This is uh, dealing with primarily two men, uh, Festus, who's the governor of Judea, His uh, palace is in Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. And then also King Agrippa, who is coming for a visit. And Festus is going to solicit the help of Agrippa to figure out what in the world do we do with this guy by the name of Paul. So that's basically where we're uh, looking at. This is going to set up uh, Paul's message before a group of Roman and Jewish elite, if you include uh, King Agrippa, where he again shares the, the gospel, shares his testimony, and that'll comprise a large part of chapter 26. So we're setting the stage now for this last and final great sermon of the Apostle Paul. So uh, it's my privilege to read for you from Scripture. This is the inspired Word of God. It is God-breathed. It's given to us to bless us, to show us God's glory, to lead us into truth so that we might be sanctified and built up in Christ as we read and let the Word of God penetrate into our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, please uh, give careful hearing listening to the Word of God with all reverence and faith. Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 13. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it, it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. But they simply had some points of disagreements with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, 
I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So here you have basically two unbelievers. You have Festus, again the Roman governor, and you have King Agrippa who rules over a northern section of the land of Israel. And I think what we see is they're coming together to try to figure out how to express the charges made against Paul. Uh, Festus is going to send Paul to Rome to be tried before the emperor, and he doesn't know what to include in the, in the, in the letter. He doesn't know what charges are. He doesn't understand it enough, so he needs help. So King Agrippa, he has much greater knowledge about all these things, the Jewish religion and all of that. So he's going to solicit his uh, input. And what we see in this passage really is going to give us some insight into the, to the minds of these men. And then later on we'll see their, both of their responses to the gospel and with both of them, Two different kinds of guys, a Roman governor and a Jewish king, and they both will respond in unbelief. Different ways, but still in unbelief. And I think this is somewhat of a character study to see how these two unbelievers respond ultimately to the gospel, which is going to be laid out in chapter 26. But it's going to give us some insight, I believe, in sharing the gospel with people that we run into today. Because most of the people that we run into are going to fit in one of these two kinds of camps. They're either going to be similar to Festus, or they're going to be similar to Agrippa. And the way that they're going to hear this, and the way they're going to respond, I think can give us some insights as to why they respond the way they do, And it can help guide us and give us, again, wisdom in sharing the gospel with those around us as well. So we'll kind of work through that as we as we study our passage together this morning. Well, first off, I need to uh, introduce to you King Agrippa. And he has somewhat of a uh, genealogy that I think is important to see at the top. You see that. uh, Herod the Great is actually his great-grandfather. So if you began to work down the family tree from Herod the Great, Herod had four sons, Aristobulus, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. And after Herod the Great died, his vast kingdom was subdivided among these four sons. Aristobulus had a son and a daughter, That's Herod Agrippa I, and then also Herodias. Herodias married Philip, her uncle, and then Antipas stole her away from Philip. And this is the guy that John the Baptist confronted for his adultery. So John the Baptist was put to death by Herod Antipas. So you begin to kind of see some of the family tree. Aristobulus on the left again had Herod Agrippa as a son. Herod Agrippa had three kids. Herod Agrippa II, he's our guy here in chapter 25. Herod Agrippa II. And then Bernice and Drusilla. Drusilla was actually the wife of Governor Felix, the previous governor before Festus. So this is kind of their genealogy again It is basically a family tree that's anti-Christ and anti-gospel. Of course, everybody knows that it was Herod the Great that tried to kill baby Jesus in Bethlehem. He murdered all these babies around the surrounding areas, but he was trying to kill baby Jesus. So obviously, Herod the Great's an evil man. Again, Archelaus... He was the one that forced Joseph and Mary to leave Bethlehem and and move back up to Nazareth. And then Antipas, the third one, third son, again as I indicated, was the one who had 
was rebuked by John the Baptist and then had John the Baptist's head cut off. So that's Herod Antipas. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist in the Gospels. And then you have King Agrippa number one, the son of Aristobulus. What did he do? He threw Peter in jail and he also had the Apostle James put to death. That's that guy. That's Agrippa number one. So he put to death Again, one of the apostles, this was John's brother, James, was put to death by Herod Agrippa number one, and also Peter thrown into prison. So he, he was very hostile to the gospel also. And then we come down to Herod Agrippa the second. And even though he was, he was a, a very complex man, uh, he did a lot of things that were not good. But uh, he was the most kindly disposed of all of them to the gospel, as we will learn as we work through later on chapter 26. He's also the very last of the Herodian dynasty. Uh, he dies in the year 100 AD, and the whole Herodian dynasty ends with Herod Agrippa II. So Agrippa and Bernice are going to arrive on the scene in verse 13. Something about the kingdom that uh, this our Herod Agrippa II that were that is in our passage this morning that he ruled over basically by this time. Now, by the uh, let me get back here. Wow, there we go. What am I doing? There we go. Buttons. It's always a button. So this is where they're at. This is Caesarea Maritime. That's Caesarea that's on the, the uh, Mediterranean Sea. That's where the governor's palace is. That's where uh, Festus' palace is. That's where Paul is. So our Herod, Agrippa II, his domain is all this up in yellow, and his capital was right here in Caesarea Philippi. Another Caesarea, but only the Caesarea Philippi. So he was given all of that by Claudius, the emperor Claudius. And later on, Nero, when he became emperor, added this kind of a light bluish green area and this area down here. So that's the area that uh, Agrippa II basically ruled over. He also was given the, uh, he was the curator of the temple in Jerusalem. I think that's Jerusalem right there. So he was actually entrusted by the emperor with the right of determining who the high priest would be. So he had tremendous influence. And he didn't always pick the guy with the great, the, the best character. You know, it was all, uh, who, who could he work with, uh, get stuff under the table. I mean, but he had the authority as a curator of the temple to not only manage the temple funds, but also determine who the high priest would be. So he's a very powerful man. Very influential man. Now his uh, upbringing was that uh, his father died when he was a young man. And he was basically thoroughly a Hellenistic Jew. He was educated in Rome. Agrippa II we're talking about now. He was trained up in the court of Claudius, the emperor. So he was very Roman, but he also was pro-Israel. So politically, he kind of had a foot in both camps. So that made him a good position to be given uh, these uh, domain areas and responsibilities. In 70 AD later on, we're around 60 AD approximately now in the book of Acts. Ten years later, when it, uh, the Romans invade to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, Agrippa is going to side with the Romans. So ultimately, he knows who butters his toast and who holds the noose. And it's the Romans. So when it comes down to choosing between Rome and the Jewish people, he's going to side with Rome for obvious reasons. But Agrippa knew both 
Roman law and Jewish law. So he would be an ideal person to help Festus figure out what to write about the Apostle Paul. Again, he knew Roman law because he was raised in Rome. He was trained there. But he also had connections with the Jewish people. So he knew the Jewish law as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul's opinion of him, and there's a a picture of Agrippa, one of the coins that he minted with his uh, name on it. The Apostle Paul had this to say about Agrippa. He says, this is later on in chapter 26 when Paul is actually addressing this uh, group of people. He says to Agrippa, you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So from Paul's perspective, he looks upon Agrippa as a man being a Jew, Jewish king who is an expert in all the customs and controversies, i.e. questions, dealing with the Jewish people. So Paul is very confident in being able to address, and very happy to address his own unique situation before this particular uh, judge and king of Israel. Later on, he'll also say, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. So Paul had some conviction that uh, Agrippa knew the Old Testament to some extent and believed the prophets to some extent. At least that's what seems to be indicated here. So this again is the the man that uh, Paul is going to make his appeal and give his his story to as they will meet uh, later on in, uh, in an assembly. Now, Bernice, that's mentioned here, just a brief word about Bernice. Uh, she's traveling with Herod Agrippa II. Notice she is his sister, but uh, she was uh, married at the age of 11 or 12. Then she remarried at the age of 13 to her uncle, who was another Herod, bore him two sons. He died. She went back to live with her brother, Agrippa. And there's all kinds of rumors of incest. Uh, So Agrippa and Bernice were probably very immoral. And later she would become actually the mistress of the emperor Titus until she's expelled out of Rome because of all the, the Romans who didn't like her having a Jewish queen. So she was eventually expelled But they're traveling around together, so you can kind of, it's probably not a good situation. So King Agrippa and Bernice now come to Caesarea Maritime. They're on the Mediterranean Sea to give their congratulations to Festus, who's just been appointed to this very powerful and important post and position. So they're there arriving as representatives of the Jewish people, welcoming Festus, again, just showing him uh, uh, congratulations. And this is also for King Agrippa and Bernice, kind of a paid vacation. You know, I mean, politicians, what do they do? They spend our money, they go on trips, you know, we pay the bill or whatever it is. And it's also an opportunity for them to go to Caesarea on the, on the sea and experience some of the seaside opulence and entertainment of the Roman palace and court. So this is a great opportunity for them. And obviously, whenever they go out, when you're a king and you have that kind of position, you're there to show off your extravagance and your clothes. And, and it was a photo op for sure. The paparazzi were probably following them around wherever they go, taking pictures and all that kind of stuff. So this is kind of the scene when they arrive to to greet and to congratulate Festus. So now, starting in verse 14, Festus begins to review the case concerning Paul with uh, King Agrippa. So in verse 14, he says that, While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before Felix. I'm sorry, before the king, saying, There is a man who is left as a prisoner by Felix. 
And so now he begins to tell the whole story of, of what has happened. And uh, you find that obviously uh, the Jews, when he arrived in Jerusalem, the Jews wanted Paul dead. They wanted a sentence of condemnation. But Festus begins to realize that, you know, there's nothing for Rome here to condemn Paul. That really the disagreement was over their own religious controversies. The areas where they differed. So in verse 18 and also in verse 20, we find some insights into how uh, Festus is uh, kind of struggling with understanding what this whole situation with Paul. So he says in verse 18, When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. He thought that maybe Paul's guilty of breaking some Roman laws, but he's really kind of surprised. These are not the charges they were bringing against him. But verse 19, they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So he's telling this to King Agrippa. He says, you know, really it doesn't affect a violation of Roman law at all. It's really a controversy within their own religion. So Festus is really totally unaware of the significance of, of what Paul has been preaching about and what he's being accused of in terms of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's just some disagreement about some dead man his name is Jesus. Paul says he's alive. He's totally oblivious to the incredible significance of that resurrection. Doesn't understand it. He doesn't realize that that resurrected Jesus Christ is now the Lord and Judge of heaven and earth who has the keys of death and, and hell in His hands. He doesn't realize the significance of it because he's not a Jew. He doesn't understand and even the word religion that he used here is a very interesting word that Festus uses because it again indicates that he sees really nothing special about Judaism. Judaism is just a religion. And the word that he uses here really means just the fear of the gods. It's a, it's a religion that's, that's, that fears the gods. Just like any other religion. So there's nothing special about Judaism. And that's kind of reflected in the language that he uses. So Paul is not a traitor to Rome in Festus' opinion. He's not guilty of any kind of an insurrection. So the issue was over Jewish theology, not Roman authority. That's the issue. It's a theological issue, not a Roman legal issue. And Rome really didn't want to step in and be the judge of settling religious matters when it came to Judaism. So he doesn't know what to do. He's in a quandary. And then in verse 20, he says, being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. And so Festus is now admitting, look, I was at a loss. I mean, this thing was way over my head. I didn't know what in the world to do, so he suggested and asked Paul if he wanted to go to Jerusalem. And Paul knew that was a death sentence. He would certainly die there. But the word loss just indicates that in Festus's mind, as a Roman governor, he was at a totally confused state of mind and uncertain and perplexed about figuring out the issue with Paul. He had employed his own mental faculties as far as he could go, and he hit a dead end with an impenetrable brick wall. In other words, mentally, he was deficient and couldn't understand what was going on. He didn't have a clue. So for him, it's just kind of a matter of curiosity. But he didn't even know what to write to the emperor about Paul's case. I don't understand it. I'm at a loss. So, King Agrippa, please help me. You know these things better than I do, so help me. So Agrippa in verse 22 is very interested in listening to Paul's case. So now starting in verse 23, we have the public introduction of Festus. So he uh, holds this great meeting here 
where Paul is going to now begin to tell his story to Agrippa. So in verse 23, we read, So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So now the next day, here's this great assembly. So Agrippa and Bernice are the guests of honor. And they kind of had the feeling of a great fancy ball uh, which draws fine people in their fine clothes. And this is an opportunity to impress one another and rub shoulders with one another. So this is kind of the... So he's called not only the commanders of the military to come, but also the leading prominent men of the city. So this is a... This is a full a room full of uh, high rollers. And then Agrippa and Bernice were there in all their royal beauty. So if there were ever two peacocks all puffed up and strutting around, basking in the beauty, glorying in their, in their incredible tail feathers, it's Agrippa and Bernice. With all their purple royal robes, all the gold hanging on them. And they're probably just walking in there, just looking at everybody staring at them and, and ooing and, and awing over their clothes and all of that. This is that, that kind of a setting. It's in, notice it says it's in great pomp. So Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp. And that word pomp, is the Greek word fantasia, where we get our word fantasy and fantastic, and it and it communicate. This is Luke's. This is Luke's description of this scene here. He says they come in in great pomp, and the word pomp implies something that's light and fleeting and passing and imaginary and of momentary interest. So they're coming in. Luke is just describing all this worldliness of this whole scene. And he describes it, wraps it up, summarizes it in this word. They came in amid great pomp. Essentially, I think it was last year, Patty and I had the privilege of going to San Diego and we went to Balboa Park, which is a wonderful park in the city. And we were walking around through different plazas. And one of the plazas, I think there was a fountain there. And there was a guy there with one of these great big huge bubble wands. Maybe you all have seen them. But he puts this great big wand. And he sticks it in the liquid or whatever it is. The, the bubble water. And then he brings it up and he swings it in the air. And these gigantic bubbles start to float around the, the, the air. And the kids were going crazy. I mean, they were seeing these gigantic bubbles. And the light was refracting through it. You could see the rainbows. I mean, it was beautiful. Just lots of these big bubbles. And then they'd just start popping. And they'd hit a kid. A bubble would fall into a kid. And it'd just pop. And all of that bubble is what Luke is saying describes in essence the spiritual condition of what in the eyes of the world is great pomp and circumstance. It's light. It's empty. It's vacuous. There's nothing to it. It's basically fleeting. It's passing. It's there for a moment. Then pop. And it's gone. And he's just summarizing just the, the spiritual atmosphere when Agrippa and Bernice come in in the midst of this great, this great pomp. So that outward pomp and pageantry cannot disguise the fact that all of their glory in their clothes and in everything else is all vanity. It's only a passing fantasy. And what a contrast. Because the end comes at the end of the verse, at the command of Festus, in walks Paul the Apostle. How is Paul dressed? Well, not anything like they were dressed. Paul didn't have an expensive wardrobe of clothes. I mean, he's in custody. He probably has one cloak. 
and he's been wearing it for a long time. And it's probably dirty. You know, when Paul in Ephesus wrote his first letter to the church at Corinth, you know how he described himself? Poorly clothed. I'm poorly clothed. So here is a man, the Apostle Paul, brought into this assembly with all these incredibly important people. And he's standing there probably still poorly clothed. Yet he was far better dressed. Far better dressed than Agrippa and Bernice. For he was clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. His clothes were better. And there's an incredible contrast, I think, that's presented between what man values and what God values. From man's perspective, And from God's perspective, Paul was far better clothed. Even if he was dressed in filthy rags, he had the righteousness of Christ. They had the outward beauty of clothes, but on the inside, they had the filthy rags of their own unrighteousness. While Paul was in custody, yet he was spiritually free in Christ. While they were outwardly free, they were in bondage to their sin. Paul had the true freedom. Matthew Henry says that Paul's bonds in so good a cause as the Gospel of Christ were far more glorious than their chains of gold around their necks. See, Agrippa and Bernice were friends of the rulers of the earth, but Paul was a child of the King of Heaven. They were citizens of a temporal kingdom, but Paul was a citizen of Heaven and of Christ's everlasting kingdom. And amid such worldly wealth and power, we are truly pilgrims and aliens just passing through. Despised in their sight, Paul was, no doubt, but precious in the eyes of God. Here stood a man of God among the pagan rulers of the earth, the unbelieving rulers of the earth. John reminds us in 1 John 2.17 that this world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. We need to remember that. It's not how you're dressed on the outside that really matters. It's how you're dressed on the inside that truly matters. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. So don't be fascinated by the world's finery. But rather we're to be fascinated with Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of this great fanfare, all of this great earthly pomp, comes this humble man of God to bear witness to Jesus Christ. So you have Agrippa and Bernice there in verse 23. You also have the commanders. Normally there were five high-ranking officers of the Roman army there at uh, Caesarea in charge of the Roman military divisions that were stationed there. So it includes at least these five high-ranking military officers. They were there. And then in addition, we're told about the prominent men of the city. These would be the merchants, the wealthy men, the retired military, prominent men, powerful, wealthy men of influence. They were all there. And then you have in verse 24 the description of the Jewish response to Paul. It was a cry for the death sentence. Festus said in verse 24, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me. Notice, all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, even even there in Caesarea. All the Jews were loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. Kill that man. He doesn't deserve to live. They were all saying that. 
And then in verse 25, Festus asserts, in his view, Paul's innocence. I haven't found anything worthy of death. And since he appealed to go to Caesar, verse 26, I'm going to send him, but I don't have anything to write. So basically, he's soliciting Agrippa to help evaluate what he can write about Paul when he sends Paul to Caesar. So let me kind of stop here for a moment. Starting in chapter 26, Paul will be introduced and he'll have the opportunity to basically uh, speak to this whole fancy crowd. But both of these men, both uh, Festus, the Roman governor, and also King Agrippa, are going to reject the gospel. There's no indication that either of them come to faith in Christ. And yet these two men, I think in some ways, kind of summarize the people you will run into and I will run into in the normal course of life. These are two different kinds of people represented by Festus and Agrippa. On the one hand, you have Festus who knew very little about religion, at least very little about Judaism. He knew nothing about Christianity. But he wanted help and formulated the charges. But he would be kind of a pagan guy. People today who really aren't very well informed about Christianity at all. He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't know what the Bible says. He may have some religious upbringing, but basically they're more almost atheists or agnostics. They don't understand. They haven't been brought up in it, so they really don't comprehend it all. Very little, I should say. And then you have Agrippa, who's an immoral man, but he knew a lot about Judaism. Okay, he was, he was a king of the Jews. And Paul acknowledged that he knew the prophets, he knew the Word of God, that he understood Judaism about their teachings and also a lot of the issues that they're facing. So here's a man that was very knowledgeable. Like many people today, they're raised up in church Raised up in Christianity, they have a lot of knowledge, but they've never truly come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So these are the two kinds of guys we have here. So you have Festus, a pagan, doesn't know much at all. And then you have Agrippa, who's very religious in some ways, at least intellectually. But both of them are rank unbelievers. And we run into people a lot of times who are raised in church and they may still go to church. They don't really understand the Gospel at all. They're still lost. So you have these two different kinds of people. So on this sense, I think what's helpful is to realize that though they're quite different men, they both have one thing in common. And that is that their minds have been tampered with by sin so that they really cannot understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They need more than just a good argument to believe. They actually need a new heart and a new mind. And this is a result of Adam's sin in the Gospel. When Adam sinned and broke God's commandment and brought a curse down upon him, that curse fell upon us as well. And part of the curse of that is that it brought a spiritual deadness into our heart. It impacted our ability to think. Our minds have been distorted so that we don't understand these things. And we cannot understand them. And that's true for Festus. And it's also true for Agrippa. The pagan and the religious man both of them have inherited the curse so that their minds cannot grasp the reality of the Gospel without grace penetrating and intervening. So I think what I'd like to do before we jump in next week, Lord willing, to the actual address that Paul makes before them is just to pause and we know how they're both going to respond. They're both going to respond in unbelief. Why? Why do they both respond that way? Why does anybody respond in unbelief? Well, again, it's because of the effects of the curse from Adam's sin. What I want us to do now is to just kind of review this, kind of a theological study to help us understand why people say no to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
whether it's a Festus type or an Agrippa type, why do people say no? And I want us to address this briefly from the aspect of what in theological terms we refer to as the noetic effects of sin. The word noetic comes from the Greek word which means mind. So basically we're talking about the mental effects of sin. We've inherited a sin nature that has tampered with our ability to correctly understand the gospel and yield to the gospel. So our mind, our will, and our heart have all been contaminated by our sin nature. And this is why these two men, quite different backgrounds, are both going to say no to the gospel. And I want to explain to you why they say no and why the people that we share the gospel with naturally say no unless the grace of God changes their heart. I want to just kind of walk through a few verses here with you. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Notice what it says about the mind. That a natural man, that's an unbeliever, someone who's not born again, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. His mind, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So the natural man, whether it's Festus or Agrippa or your neighbor or the person at the, at the office and you share the gospel with them, they're a natural man. They're an unbeliever. And what we know is true about them is that they, doesn't, they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They don't accept the gospel. They don't accept that they're a sinner and they need a Savior and only Christ and they need to repent and believe. They don't accept that. And not only that, they cannot understand it because those truths have been spiritually appraised. They cannot understand it. Cannot. They don't have the ability. The damages of Adam's sin, the curses brought upon us, has so impacted our minds that we cannot understand it. We just think it's foolish. That's foolishness. It's kind of like in the ice storm that we all... By the way, does anybody still not have their electricity on? Okay, thank the Lord. Well, for nine days, we, we didn't have it for nine. Some of y'all had it, didn't have it for two weeks or so. But I tell you what, every, I tell you, a hundred times every time I went in my bathroom, I flipped the switch and nothing, no light. And I'd walk out, five minutes later, I'd walk back in, flip the switch, just out of habit, no light. Why didn't I have light? Well, because somewhere down the line, there was a rupture, there was a breakage, power line was down, transformer fuse blew up, but whatever that connection was to bring that current into my house was broken. And I don't care how hard I flipped that switch, light was not coming on. There was no juice in those wires at all coming into my house. Now what has happened mentally is for us to connect the dots and to understand the things of the Spirit of God so that I understand them and yield to them, I need to have that connection there in my mind, in my soul, in my heart, in my will, and it's not there. Sin has broken the connection. So there's no, there's no life passing through. There's no truth really coming in changing my inner man until that connection has been restored by the grace of God. The unbeliever cannot accept. He doesn't accept. The gospel is foolishness to him. He cannot understand. His mind doesn't get it. Now, he can understand on a certain level aspects of the gospel, but not the true spiritual understanding that I need a Savior. I'm a sinner. And oh Lord Jesus, forgive me and save me from my sins. That connection has been broken. They're not able to understand on that level. Something drastic has happened. And that's the curse from Adam's sin. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul adds another dimension to it that Satan has blinded their eyes as well. 
in whose case the God of this world has blinded the what? The minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So not only is there, is there that own inner blindness that we carry where, where that, that understanding connection has been broken, but now Satan dumps on an additional level of blindness by his own devious methods. And only Christ, only God can, who is, can shine out of our darkness His light into our, into our darkness and give us light of the knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Only God can do that. Just like on day one of creation when God created everything in darkness and then He said, let there be light and He created light in the midst of the darkness. And Paul is saying that's exactly what happens to us spiritually. Well, full of darkness, Satan has blinded us, and only God can speak light into your darkness. Only God can do that. You can't create it. You can't make it. So when we preach the Gospel to people, their natural reaction is, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's not for me. That can be your truth, but it's not my truth. You go your own way. And, you know, that's fine for you, but it's not fine for me. They don't understand. They can't understand. And that's because of the sin nature that we've in, uh, inherited. How about John 8.43? Why? This is Jesus speaking to the unbelieving Jews. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. Now wait a second. Audibly, they were hearing His Word. They heard everything that He said. But He's talking about that gift, that spiritual ears, this uh, ability to spiritually hear and respond to the words of Jesus. You cannot hear My Word. It doesn't penetrate. In verse 47, He says, He who is of God, that is the one who's been born of God, hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. God must do His work first before we will hear and understand. Before the mind can be healed to understand and submit and repent to the Gospel, it requires a prior work of God's grace. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. Because the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, every unbeliever is only in the flesh. That's all they have. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They have the flesh. So the mind of their flesh, is it neutral? No, it's not neutral. It's hostile toward God. That's why people get so upset when you tell them the truth of the Gospel. Their natural mind not only cannot understand, it will not accept, it's hostile towards the things of God. And even that, it's not willing to subject itself to the law of God. The law of God convicts them of sin. They're not willing to acknowledge that or, or submit to it. And it says they're not even able. Again, they're morally unable to do that. Something is wrong in the heart in the mind, in the will. They can't do it. They can't do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know what pleases God? Does anybody remember Hebrews 11.6? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, you've got to have faith to please God. They can't please God if you're in the flesh because the flesh cannot produce faith. That's a gift of God. They can't do it. They're not able to. How about this? Ephesians 2.1 You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So when God told Adam, in the day you eat of this tree, I'm telling you, you're going to die. They ate of the tree. They didn't die physically on that day, but they did die spiritually on that day. And we've inherited that spiritual death. Every unbeliever, your office worker, 
your neighbor again, whoever we talk to, they are spiritually dead. And the result of that is that they're under the influence and control of the world and Satan and their flesh. And their mind is controlled by those three-headed enemies. So they're spiritually dead. They can't respond on their own. And then in Ephesians 4, look at how the mind is emphasized in this passage. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So these are Gentiles, all of them by nature. They walk, they live their life, they go to work, they spend time with their family, all in the futility of their mind. Their mind is full of futility. And then he adds to that, being darkened in their understanding. So now their mind again, their understanding is darkened. They don't understand, they don't see the light. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance, again the mind, full of ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. So all of this basically is explaining why both Festus and Agrippa, two different kinds of men, are going to respond in basically the same way. Because they can't make any other response than unbelief and to say no to the Gospel. So whether you're a pagan and you don't understand all this Judaism at all or all this God stuff, and I don't know, I mean, Festus probably, you know, he may have worshipped the, the, the Roman gods or whatever, uh, so he probably had his own form of spirituality, but he's basically a pagan when it comes to Judaism. But he responds in such a way that's quite interesting because later on, this is what he's going to say to Paul. This is at the end of chapter 26 when Paul gets to the end of his discourse. Festus is going to say in a loud voice in this whole assembly, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. In other words, this is foolishness, Paul. All this stuff about the resurrection and all that you've been telling us, that is ridiculous. You're insane, dude. I mean, your mind is just scrambled. You don't, you need to be in some asylum someplace. You're out of your mind. You're mad. And that's how some people are going to respond to you and respond to me when we share Christ with them. So from the pagan, you see the hostility really coming out. And then you got this religious unbeliever, Agrippa, who has background in the Scriptures and his responses in a short time. And you can translate this either as written, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian, or in a short time will you persuade me to become a Christian? So there's two different nuances, but either way, we know by how Paul responds, he's not there yet. He's not in the kingdom. He's an unbeliever. So in either way, they, they both appear to respond in unbelief. The point that I'm making is that regardless of the kind of person that we share the gospel with, they're unable to respond because they don't understand. They're unable to submit and repent unless the grace of God changes their heart. So that a gospel harvest is impossible without God's grace. So in closing, these are things we need to keep in mind as we share the gospel. We still have the Great Commission. It's still our responsibility to take the gospel to the world. But as we're sharing the gospel with people, we need to be mindful of the noetic effects of sin. I need to know... And be mindful that there's no way I'm going to somehow convince this guy. And it's not up to me on my eloquence or how, how bet, you know, I'm able to communicate the gospel. It's ultimately dependent upon God's grace if they're ever going to come to faith in Christ. So I need to be praying for that person. Oh God, open their minds as I'm talking to them. Oh God, change their heart. 
Remember back in Acts 16, verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. She was kind of in the Agrippa camp. She would have said no too, but we're told in that verse, the Lord opened her heart and she responded to the things that Paul was preaching. So we need to be praying, oh God, open their heart. Because if God doesn't, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And they will not respond. They will reject it. Regardless of what kind of background that they have. So number one, when we share the Gospel, be mindful of the noetic effects of sin. Lord, help them to understand. Lord, give them a new heart. Give them mind and insight and conviction and faith and grace. Give that to them. And be mindful that when we share, it's not based again upon our superiority of speech or of our wisdom. Paul said to the Corinthian church, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So be praying for God to work in their hearts because apart from that, their default response is no. Not for me. They are programmed to say no. Not for me. Until God reprograms them with a new heart. And that's what we need to understand. Secondly, When we do share the Gospel, try to stick with the essentials. Sometimes Gospel evangelistic opportunities can go off in all kinds of different directions. But we need to bring it back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Their sin. Christ the only Savior. And they need to repent and believe. Focus on the essentials of the Gospel. And thirdly, speak the truth in love. It's God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. They need to understand that God is offering grace and forgiveness to them. And if they want to escape the wrath of God and the judgment of God, they need to come to Christ. But speak that truth out of a love for these people because they're facing an eternity either in heaven or in hell. And we need to love their souls. We need to love people. And then finally, consider utilizing Paul's approach, which we'll get into in chapter 26. But he shares his testimony. He talks about his sin, his past life, his conversion experience, and his calling into the ministry and the essence of the Gospel. So maybe we can pick up some things on how we can uh, utilize the same principles in our Gospel presentation. So again, in summary, I think that uh, Festus and Agrippa really kind of represent the two kinds of people you're going to run into. Either the outwardly hostile pagan, don't understand, don't have a clue, or the religious person has been raised up in church and has been thanks they're saved maybe. And we need to try as carefully and clearly as we can communicate the Gospel, understanding that their default answer is no, not for me, unless God penetrates with His grace and changes their heart. So may this encourage us, not discourage us, because we know that God is actively calling His elect to faith. And wouldn't it be great if you are part of someone's salvation? because you had the boldness and the courage to share Christ with them. And may God use us to that end to bring a harvest by the grace of God for the glory of God. Well, let's close in prayer. Father God, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for this incredible situation in which You brought the Apostle Paul to speak to the people of power in that ancient day. And Lord, we may not have the opportunity to stand before kings or great military leaders or prominent leaders of the community, 
But Lord, you can use us with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, our co-workers, that you might use us, Lord, in love to share the gospel, praying for their souls, O God, that you would be pleased like you did with Lydia's heart to open their heart that they might receive grace and be able to respond in faith in Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, would you use us in that great harvest which you are bringing to pass? Use us, Lord, for your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.